This curiosity about the development of Sanskrit, we usually say that it's the mother of all languages in India. But how can such a perfect language, you know, come all of a sudden? So, what was there behind the development of Sanskrit? You made some assertions there that I don't think can be substantiated very well. A perfect language coming all of a sudden, whereas there's been evidence of a development and refinement of Sanskrit until such point it came to uh, if you can call it perfect, that word needs to be deconstructed. It came to uh, a stage where you can call it refined. So I believe that it has evolved into where it was. I don't know if there is sufficient uh, information that tells you the various stages in time when it has evolved to that point. But if you look at, look at the early Rig Vedic texts and the works by Srikanth Talagiri and others, that would give you a clue of how Sanskrit was uh, uh, in the olden times and the later periods also. Can you first say yeah. your name, please? Yeah, my name is Trijan. Uh, I wanted to ask that since there is a lot of study and research available which says that uh, there was no Aryan invasion theory and uh, the development of civilization within India, what's the single biggest obstruction from the other side because of which we're not able to formally substantiate this or teach it in our schools or you know accept it in a formal manner? What's the single biggest argument for the other side, which or theory from the other side, which we haven't been able we haven't been able to falsify it till now. Well, it turns out that when you shake the Aryan invasion theory, you're shaking the tail of the tiger. <laughs> On the other side is the whole edifice of the Western identity narrative. They have a quest for their own narrative. It's entrenched in their thought processes today and their universities today that the proto-Indo-European people who came, they started a trajectory of a certain sort and came into that period of time in that, uh, that place. It is that narrative that we are up against. So even today when you see genetic works that attempt to support Maria Gimbuta's works on the Kurgan hypothesis and other things, that is what is coming into play. Our scholars are in a way attempting to have a very safe passage over here. If they were to come out and strike it on their own saying there's no Aryan invasion theory, then the academy and the West who they are in a way, they look up to them and they may be postdoctoral positions, maybe visiting professorships. They need to more or less try to be on the same plane. Either if they're advancing a new theory, then they must also say, what about the Western theory? So we are at a point now with this talk where I'm rubbishing the genetic evidence they're presenting. I'm rubbishing some of the archaeological artifacts. They exist, but they do not talk about migration. There are artifacts, but they don't talk about migration. So we still have to continue to understand the source of the Western people or accept the Indic notions that the Western people are derived from Indian stock, which is where all the evidence is pointing to. It's not something they are willing to take. I would think there's got to be a seismic shift in thinking in all over the world where we take an evidence-based approach over here, which is what I've been trying to do here. If we advance an evidence-based approach, reopen these questions and show that there are questions all over the place. Hopefully, future scholarship will take it further. But now we know that uh, uh, we are more or less hit, uh, bludgeoned in the head with a huge edifice of the Western narrator. So the question is, uh, here in the slides you established that the Indian civilization is around 24,000 year old. Like right. We have proofs for that. Uh, sir, so I am a Jain, I belong to a Jain family mm -hmm. and there are some stories which I kept hearing in my childhood. So mm -hmm. one of them is that uh, like uh, all this time is divided into six Kal. Mm -hmm. So we are right now in fifth uh, Pancham Kal and in Chaturth Kal there were 24 Tirthankaras. Mm -hmm. So uh, and this is like endless, like you are going from first Kal till sixth Kal 
and at that time time will uh, like the world will de- uh, de- uh, like right, right, deteriorate right. and after that will be 6th 5th 4th 1st and again so that's how time will go on right. i think there's similar theory in hinduism as well right. so can you correlate that kind of theory which uh, with like if uh, like with some of the work which you have done and if some it, that thing would be correlated to the proofs which you have sure 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 this is a very interesting question i'm not sure if we can correlate it as yet but we can make some observations on this line of thinking the jain cosmology and the hindu cosmology have got certain relations for example in the hindu cosmology you have the yuga cycle people claim that the yuga cycle finds first mention in surya siddhanta or naryabhata's works therefore it's a recent work but i don't believe that it's much more ancient than that i think there are reasons for saying that also the cosmol cosmological view presented by the yuga cycle and brahma's day and night suggests to us a close correspondence with our currently known knowledge systems that the universe is about uh, 10 billion years old and also with the fate of the universe today there are open questions whether the universe will expand forever into lifeless cold uh, uh, places or will eventually the gravitational action of uh, dark energy and other such things result in a big crunch again leading to dissolution and starting over the hindu and the jain cosmologies are very very clear they say life is cyclic life is cyclic so there appears to be a pralaya a dissolution of uh, creation a period of silence and again a period of creation today we have theories these are theories including the expanding universe as hawking puts it or a big crunch universe as others put it these are all theories that we have our current state of measurement of cosmological constants and the rate of expansion and the amount of dark matter do not yet allow us to make a call so even today there are satellites that go to outer space and try to make measurements in various millimeters various levels of the electromagnetic spectrum whether it is very very high frequencies or low frequencies different satellites have been sent to measure the universal phenomena to refine our cosmological models so we can make a call about the fate of the universe the birth and the fate of the universe but today's technology we still don't have a call on it we have a lot of theories but no call on it the indian systems i include jain and hindu as indian systems are very strong in their thought process they have already put their theory out there this is what it is pralaya there's going to be a dissolution there's going to be a period of silence there's going to be creation again a new brahma will start up and there'll be a new thing we are on the 51st brahma right now and again creation will start up so the question is how can we validate these things as of today i think we don't yet have sufficient information it's interesting that our theories in a hindu framework hindu lens or a jain framework jain lens allows us to put forth a cosmological theory there is no less to the theory sitting out there so uh, one more thing uh, about dinosaurs <laughs> <laughs> what, what about, about dinosaurs so when did they come like do we have any google text that even they were existing I don't think so. I don't think so. At least to my knowledge, I don't think so. People would say that the Dashavatara loosely talks about uh, evolutionary processes, though there are some issues in which came first, the fish or the uh, boar and those kinds of things. But bottom line, people loosely make these analogies. But I don't think any of our texts talk about uh, these things. At least to my knowledge, I might be mistaken. My name is Deepanjali. Uh, first of all, namaste, and namaste. thank you very much for this wonderful, wonderful uh, thank you. presentation. Thank you. Really, really helped us a lot. Mine is a question which links to what the gentleman had also asked. There is a tremendous resistance to presenting this very important information, which we need to do 
out there in the world. Also in India, the resistance I believe is not just Western. The resistance is also within our own, as you are aware, right. we have all been prejudiced. Right. Right. Our own right. Right. There is a tremendous sort of a, a leftist discourse, very strong leftist discourse which is dominating. I would actually like to point out, it's not so much a question, but more like a request. There is a lot of knowledge racism. You are a scholar, you are an expert, you present at various forms, you write books. There is a knowledge racism, there is a, there is a resistance of, like you said, the Western world to receiving information from us and with evidence. So what are we doing? How are we going to be able to fight that? That is my sincere question. What are we doing? Okay. How can we approach Okay, so I believe what we need to do is use their own methods against them. The easiest way to do it is to read the works of the people who we think are on the other camp. I, I take the view that there are views only. I don't like to put them in camps and so on. I like to see myself as a scientist who's out to get evidence-based analysis of the facts. So when we read the critique of, for example, Michael Witzel, he critiqued a lot of Indic scholars in one of his papers where he said this is the reason why their works are not taken seriously about how they are not uh, getting into the frameworks set by the Westerners. So if you go to that framework and address it, then there's a claim that can be addressed appropriately. If you read the works of... Uh, people like Pingree, Pingree or even Sedenberg, it's very clear the methodologies that they use to advance some of their outlandish claims. So we are today at an unfortunate situation where the burden of proof is so much less for them if a professor from Columbia or MIT asserts that this knowledge went to Greek, to India, everybody buys it unquestioningly. However, if a scholar from this side comes and says that this knowledge went from India to Western world, the burden of proof is enormous. It's upward hill everywhere because the ecosystem has been laid out so pervasively by them. Everything is tied to everything else. The Greek period, the Greek scholars, the Greek works, how one impacted the other. The, the narrative is so strongly tied in today's discourse that when you take one little element here and shake it, you need to work on the entire edifice. So this is the uphill battle that Indic scholars must realize and they need to work. I presented a few instances over here, here and there, but I'm fully aware that there's a huge matrix of information out there which we need to attack with a multidisciplinary approach. So my suggestion would be exactly this, that scholars need to write in the idiom of the West, take their papers, take their methods, have an evidence-based uh, approach towards this and write papers even including theirs. I realize that the old boys club will not allow a certain narrative to come in Western journals also, but continue trying. There will be conferences where you can make your voice felt and from there on hopefully write books and from there on write papers and so on. It requires a lot of energy, patience, money. We want you to understand that the Indic scholar invariably is not assigned as a historian. My day job is as an engineer. <laughs> So I do this out of passion. So there are a lot of people like me who... I think it works better this way because you are... <laughs> Thank you. But, but the point is that it also takes an enormous cost and time and other things to make these things happen. So scholars just need to persevere at this and hopefully the change will come. But the bottom line is we have an evidence-based approach. So today when I talk to my critics, I tell them I've given you space for only three things. You can attack my data, you can attack my methods, or you can attack my conclusion. You have nothing else to attack. If you attack any of these things, I tell them you're attacking already published literature out there. So you're actually attacking the works of some researcher published in nature, because that is his works that I'm quoting over here. So the space that I've given them is very little to pigeonhole me as a Hindutva or as a something else, saffron. They can't. 
that's a lazy way of dealing with scholarship mockery derision uh, and uh, these kind of things so they have to deal with my message what i'm saying over here so we force them with their own idiom their own game having an evidence based approach over here to do all of these things i think we just need to persevere at this hopefully things will change uh, i just uh, had a very uh, focused thing uh, how is geological evidence uh, you know also uh, adding or uh, you know supporting uh, whatever you have just now uh, put because uh, i think you've put the astronomical the mm -hmm. you know uh, you had put everything right, right. but i thought geology also uh, was quite uh, strongly uh, correlating a lot of uh, what you have just now yes it is it does in fact i presented works on climate change i presented two papers over here one on climate change I showed how a nature paper talked about indus valley civilization having uh, gone down because of 200 year drought cycle I also presented the work of Anindya Sarkar and others from IIT who worked upon the, I don't think I presented that paper, somewhere else I presented that paper, where I showed how they worked on the mineral mineralogy of the, uh, of the of the rocks that they found in that basin and tried to show about uh, their content, isotopic content and so on, and tried to show that even Harappa was doomed by climate change rather than any other factors. So uh, geology does offer us very strong mechanisms where we can address some of these questions and uh, add to the narrator. And today geology is used to appreciate things about the Saraswati River, the paleo channels of the Saraswati River, when it dried up and all of these kind of questions. Hi, um, I'm Sanjeev Sanyal. Um, just a statement which is uh, just as a response to a question uh, made, uh, made earlier mm. um, about how does one respond with all these narratives. And I'm going to tell you a little bit from my own experience of writing books, trying to tell the new narrative. Frankly, um, <clears throat> the, there is a lot more acceptance of new narratives now because simply the evidence is now so overwhelming mm -hmm. that the old narrative has to a large extent lost its credibility. The real problem is that no systematic writing of new narratives is being done. Very, very frankly, and my own experience is that when people begin writing them, it is actually faces very little resistance. I was surprised myself in many of the things that I've written facing almost no resistance from <coughs> the establishment. Uh, I've given, gone to even JNU and spoken about many of these things and have got good uh, response. Uh, at the height of last year's uh, agitation with Kanaya, etc., I went and gave a talk and had no problem at all. So my view is that now the time is no longer to talk about, oh yes, the, there was resistance and so on. The, there is now the time to begin writing these new narratives down. We've got to stop talking about why the others are wrong. We have to begin taking all the new data and say, what is a new possible narrative? Number one, this is very important. Unfortunately, not enough of this is being done. We are still stuck too much in disproving the earlier narrative, not writing the new narrative, number one. The second point is, and which relates to the first, that when this new na narrative is being written, we need to expend a lot of energy in making sure that it is evidence-based and is scientific. This is a major, major failure. What happens is, and I am finding this repeatedly in talks that I go to, is that there may be 10 uh, pieces of evidence of which five are good and five are weak. Now, maybe because the way um, our education system is set up, we think that writing 10 points is better than writing five points. But in fact, <clears throat> what happens is, by virtue of putting five points which are weak, you destroy the value of the five points that are strong. 
and this is happening systematically. So what happens is that there's lots of great stuff to write about Indian scientific achievements without having to make random claims about Vedic flying chariots. And this is a major, major problem of those who want to write new narratives. It very quickly gets hijacked by random claims. So two points I want to make. One is the time is there, has come for writing the alternative narrative rather than debunking the old. And there is actually, in my own experience, very little resistance to it. Two, when that is done, it has to be properly, scientifically, and evidence-based. Making random assertions is hurts the cause, it doesn't help it. Thank you, sir. Sanjeev. Those are excellent uh, remarks, and I think very, very valid. Are these claims and this, this new narrative, is it, is it being done in a more formal manner? That was my question earlier also, that is it like authors like, Mr. Sanyal or yourself, you can write books, but will it be accepted in a formal channel? And is, is are, are actual uh, organizations like, for example, the Archaeological Survey or other organizations which are uh, which have formal authority, are they venturing into this field and uh, revisiting those narratives or rewriting them? I'd like to <coughs> collaborate with um, corroborate what uh, Sanjeev just said. Also, our empirical evidence is that there's an openness to these ideas now. And I hope that is large of a, uh, part of a larger wave that like Sanjeev is uh, suggesting. We have found that a particular state that we've been working for the last uh, one year with has invited us to uh, review the textbooks. So we have gone ahead and given, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So for the last one year, members of the IHAR team have been working the sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade. We've given a 150 page review first time that they've ever got such a professional review where we have detailed out the issues over there. Unfortunately, the reviews are not topical. In other words, it is not as if change this line, change that word. The narrative is deeply embedded in the text in a noxious way. You need to rewrite several sections of it before it makes sense. We don't have the bandwidth to do that. However, we have called out the critics. We have aligned the review along several things like factual errors, errors of distortion, omission, biases, and these kinds of things. We call them out and they've asked for change in those things. We are very glad that we have triggered an enormous debate within the state between NCRT officials, people on this side of the spectrum, <coughs> excuse me, that side of the spectrum and so on. For the last four or five weeks, or actually much more, they've been having continuous meetings to discuss these things. So I'm very uh, gratified to hear that. I was in the state uh, just about one week back where I gave a workshop again, and this is the news that I got from them. So th that's one good piece of news. Another good piece of news is that we were invited to another state in the strip where it was inaugurated by the education minister himself, who came and uh, wanted to hear this workshop on what do we have to offer over here, where is the evidence for any distortion, this new narrative that we are talking about. So there appears to be at least some kind of um, uh, 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 indications that are positive that people are ready for a new narrative. Everywhere I went, people said, like Sanjeev said, when are you going to write your book? So I am in a very unenviable position where the, my, my day job takes away most of my time. This is my vacation time. I'm blowing up my vacation here on this trip. So I need to figure out when exactly you can start writing books on some of these things. And there are a whole lot of other scholars also who are doing a fantastic job. Now, your other part of your question is, is this been accepted by ASI? Are they working on these things? This is where, unfortunately, I see another line of thinking. When I talked about Kiryadi, I pointed to you two recent news items which says the Tamil Nadu government will now control excavations at Kiradi. The Tamil Nadu government has a vested interest in the Dravidian politics. 
the dravidian politics is utterly spurious like i've shown in the identities over here however they're not going to let go of it because it's the very identity of the state today at least today it's not in the past but today it's a manufactured identity so politics comes into the picture and it's not easy to untangle away from that at all so i don't have a good answer for that that when will asi or others pick up some of these things and work on these things we hope that we see change we hope that future scholars will come especially the textbook changes that we make i we hope that we can make a difference in the life of young scholars who later on pick this up and take it to greater extents we hope that process is underway that's all i can say sir yes, which are these two states <laughs> i am i am taking great pains not to mention them and you are asking me to mention them in public <laughs> i i'll tell you why i am asking sir i was uh, i was not disillusioned but i knew that what are whatever is being taught in the social sciences in schools hmm. is nothing but uh, it is uh, all false hmm. so i am sure that my kids never went to schools hmm. to keep them up I have, they have to go to the college, sir. Right. So they have picked up whatever I had hide back in the past. Mm -hmm. Now I, I, they have become totally anti-national, mm. anti-societal. Right, right. Any truth which is being told to them, they confront it so violently mm. that I cannot face it. Right, right. Sir, ये ये कहानी कब तक चलती रहेगी? I'm very sorry to hear that, but that's a very truth because today I showed the identity problem of the Indians. we have all these manufactured identities that we are quick to map on ourselves including the global citizen but rarely does the underlying unity of the indian civilization comes in my talks i hope i have been able to show there is really an underlying unity to the indian civilization across genetics across archaeology across astronomy across philosophies across learning we have an underlying unity that we don't talk about that is a thrust of my talk untold story of indian civilization we need to be highlighting this uh, unity rather than the today's textbooks have everything on the basis of oppressor oppressed relationship everything everything in social studies is in the prism of oppressor oppressed everything is reduced to that in the process of that why would they highlight a unity they only highlight the differences or imagined differences that's all in our reviews this is what we have observed in the textbooks unfortunately the such thinking that leads our students to come and say that uh, india is an occupational uh, indian army is an occupational army <laughs> occupying force and things of this ridiculous nature this kind of thinking comes because our textbooks fail to give students positive self esteem and a connection with their ancestors we are in such an un unenviable situation today I had a talk with an NCERT gentleman who attended my workshop in one of these cities. Very unfortunate. This gentleman came and told me later, "Why do I care about the ancient and their achievements? I am more concerned about where India is today and where it is going. I don't care about the past." I was flabbergasted. Plus, I had lost my voice by the time. It was an all-day seminar, so I couldn't confront him. But in addition to that here a couple of other very strange remarks to make that told me the shallowness of the argument that they bring to the table he had suggested to me that genetics is like a nazi ideology because it is after a perfect race i don't know where he got that from my talk because i was trying to say that there is no aryan gene no dravidian gene no brahmin gene no kshatriya gene we are all the same however he had take <coughs> <coughs> taken away a different message so unfortunately it is these people who get to write the textbooks 
the NCRT textbooks and so on. So they have a vested interest in continuing the social liberal arts way of looking at things where everything is reduced down to uh, modernism, postmodernism, feminism, gender identity, that, this and other such things. That is what our textbooks are. If I may make a statement which is very strong, I would say that some of the textbooks that we reviewed read like Maoist training manuals. I am not exaggerating. I was shocked after reading some of the respect they have for modern enterprise, the respect they have for capitalism, the respect they have for Indian law and other things, the way they presented sublimally, sublimally with messages here and there. It reads like a Maoist training manual, not like a textbook that makes Indians link back to their heritage with pride. This is the situation where we are. How do we counter that? I am, this I, is what I referred to in my question. Sorry, yes, I know. I know you did. I know, I know you did. Is Absolutely. It's in the media, I've been a former journalist. Yes. It is in the media, it is in our textbooks. Yes. We have, we, have, we, have, we have very much encountered that. But like I said, like Sanjeev said, there's a positive message here. We are seeing now different states that are coming forward and asking, we want to correct it. How can we correct it? So this is a positive sign. In the next two days, I'll be giving two workshops, one in Coimbatore, one in Chennai, on uh, two school teachers. All-day workshops, 10 to 5 to school teachers, highlighting some of the distortions in the textbooks and how we might teach a positive narration of history so that we enthuse young students and young minds with a positive image of themselves and their civilization. I'm going to emphasize the cultural unity of India, the thought, the, 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 the great uh, unity that is going through across all threads. This is going to be my central message to them also using evidence-based approach and so on. So there's a positive line in all of these things. Every year that I come to India, I give about five to 10 talks of this nature. Now I'm finding the engagement has gone higher and higher. People want to come and discuss these things. Again, a positive indicator. So we hope that by these very small things that we are doing, we'll be able to induce some change. So if I may, sorry, to just keep you on dreaming. How would you confront that NCRT? We're uh, recording all of this. We make a lot of stupid sounds. This is a very common question that comes across. Why do I I wouldn't like to go on a confrontational path with NCRT. Because I'd seek, I'd seek a collaborative path. One more NCRT gentleman who had come over there had invited me I had to come to NCRT and give a talk on science-based approach to Indian history. Evidence-based, just the way I did it today. I don't know if it was an empty gesture or it was a valid thing, but I gave him my card and I wholeheartedly shook his hand and said, I'll be very, very glad to do that. So if that materializes, I'd like to seek a collaborative way of working with NCRT. So I wouldn't like to make any controversial statement. So I, I, I'd like to think that there are people there who are interested in seeking change and want to see where the directions of change are coming from and posing their narrative in a very firm footing. The same NCRT gentleman also told me, just because I've heard a new narrative, I'm not going to change the textbooks. I'm going to wait to see what a great many others say. When there are 10 or 15 or 20 textbooks that talk about the same thing, then I will change. So he's been very conservative in his approach. And, and uh, I can't blame him for that. If he doesn't have expertise, he's going to rely on the expertise of others. He's not going to change the textbooks for the next new theory that comes along. Why do I care about the ancients? I care about now. I mean, your answer to that is uh, <laughs> So why do I care about the ancients when I just care about now? That is the question. So unless I know where I came from, how do I know where I am and where I'm going to? I am not at this point as trajectory in time as a solitary unit on a journey into the future. 
that is a markovian model the markovian model in mathematics does not care where you came from it is just a function of where you are and where you're going to next so probability of transition however we are connected to the past by whole lot of chains the genetic chains the cultural memories the practices in our house the kind of systems that we have grown up with the kind of memories that we have of our past these are all the trajectories that go back into the past unless we base our civilizational ethos on these things what are we going to base our identities on are we going to call ourselves global citizens are we going to have some bastardized version of identity on us there is neither here nor there partly western partly indian partly that partly this so all of this in the anxiety that all of us should live together so there's a conflation of fears that i found in this ncrt gentleman who seemed to think that an assertion of the ancient indian ideas would be detrimental to sections of the indian population however he missed the central point of my talk where i was talking about an underlying unity i talked to him about the philosophy of indian systems that never ever talk about being a danger or a oppressive force on others indian thought has always sought unity with the one the brahman every one of the indian thoughts tries to say we are part of the cosmos no separation between creator and created our aim in life has is to dispel the avidya of who we are so that we know our true nature in doing this our civilization has produced enormously beautiful statements like vasudeva kutumbakam that statement makes no meaning unless one is steeped in the culture of this country which is brahman unless we are steeped in this culture that statement makes no meaning so this is a culture that has uh, formed enormously powerful ideas including the mahavakyas and other things enormously powerful ideas so we are the inheritors of all of these beautiful philosophies sciences methodologies of our ancestors unless we acknowledge and connect to the past how can we take it to the future we are going forward with no idea of how we got here so we are going ahead with the narratives of the west that this came from the greeks babylonians that this and so on you are worthless you had nothing this is what they thought you everybody thought you this is the kind of narrator what kind of an idea would the young indian grow with so mine is not based on jingoism i am basing this whole idea on truth that's what we are ex- we are exhorted to be as uh, hindus and indians we are exhorted to follow truth wherever we can dispel the avidya in your mind dispel the ignorance in your mind so we are on a journey to find the truth so this is nothing but an expression of the truth over here let us try to find the truth of our narratives and let us tell the story nobody should feel threatened by this because the indian system has been one of syncretism all the time one of syncretism all the time finding space for others to live under the umbrella whether is the empirical evidence of the jews empirical evidence of the nestorians who are today called syrian christians everybody has found sanctuary in india and they lived peacefully in india so where is the question of conflating fears by this ncrt gentleman that an assertion of our past will lead to uh, uh, these kind of uh, dissipative uh, tendencies no such thing i think he is conflating his own fears rather than confronting the reality of the situation yes sir Uh, thank thank you very much for your talk it really was quite enlightening for me um i'll just give you two or three statements and a question quickly um i like the beginning of the sort of genetic migration um but the neanderthals to the west are still bigger and they only respect power right so that that's basically the fundamental issue it was tens of thousands of years ago it is still today um the 
case here is that the mind is still colonized by the Constitution itself. And so that's a very big obstacle um, domestically, and then it broadcasts all over the world. Um, but it's changing a little bit insofar as if this is the origin of civilization itself, which it seems to be, we all think it is. Um, excavations leading in that direction, Lothal, you go on the Wikipedia pages, are beginning to admit this. Um, question, though, in terms of evidence, standing aside all the politics and everything, because I really don't care about it, there seems to be a geographic correlation in your color mutation thing between north and south and between castes. So not to be divisive, because culturally I accept everything that you've said, but if you just observe color spectrum in India and you know in the tri tribal areas and things like that, there still seems to be something there that needs to be explained. Do you see color spectrum? Did I hear you right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think I talked about the issue of color by the by the allele that causes uh, the effects of skin color. It's an expression of a certain mutation in the 15th chromosome that controls the expression of the pigment melanin and that controls the skin color. That has got nothing to do with the so-called race or any such thing. There may be some morphological differences between people. But these are at a different epigenetic level entirely. These are nothing to do with the migration and the things that we are talking about. Right. Back twenty-four thousand years, mm -hmm. around the same time that this color thing happened, right? And if knowledge itself, Vedic knowledge, correlates to a specific river that's no longer there, and you follow the river up to the mountain, you know, did they did the color mutation happen there and then travel downwards twenty-four thousand years ago? I don't know. I don't know. Interesting ideas that you put, whether the color mutation and the Vedic knowledge transmission was related around 24,000 years ago, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe future results with evidence, with data, might be able to uncover something on that. Today, we know that there was a mutation. We know that there was a river. We know that there was knowledge. Now you're trying to connect the three. That's a new narrator. So we need to figure out the evidence for that narrator. We don't have that. Sir, so my, my name is Ashutosh. I'm one of those Facebook Hindus, you know. Uh, my uh, question here is, is uh, I have tried and I've read some of the, uh, watched some of the videos. Uh, so, uh, so in in uh, in this uh, light of this archaeological and astronomical proof that we've tried to build this narrative upon, one of the questions that you know, though the other side proof asks is. No, the Kali Yuga is going to be four lakh thirty-two thousand, and and you know, and so on. You know, Dwapar eight, and then twelve and sixteen. So that kind of timeline is not supported by modern science. Uh, on the other hand, there's an alternative reading of these very very uh, uh, things that that Kriya Yoga and Swami Yukteswaragiri talks about. That this is not as long as that, and the knowledge was lost when Mahabharata happened because. Krishna willed that knowledge be taken away, and you know the, the the true cycle is you know it's only a couple of thousand years because that is very important for people like me who who rely upon your work, quote it and say this is the proof, okay. and they say your proof that archaeological uh, and astronomical linkage you're talking about points to a four lakh year kaliyuga, which is not okay. possible. So let, let me take it from there. I understand your Thank question you. over here. So the yuga cycle, you're talking about the antiquity of the yuga cycle and how does it uh, correlate with some of the things that I'm talking about. You need to deconstruct every word over there. When ancient Indians talked about year, what did they mean by year? Did they mean the solar year 
of Rigvedic 360 degree uh, 360 days a year or did they mean the lunar year what did they mean by year you need to deconstruct that <coughs> into an understanding of the model i have a talk on youtube called um, antiquity of indian medical system no sorry dating of the ramayana in that i'm not dating the ramayana but dating the events in ramayana because you can only date datable events so there are some datable events and proposing what dates they may have been there i discuss the yuga model and how we can whether we can use it today or we cannot use it today all i can say is there is no sufficient understanding from us about the yuga model over there to propose that let's fix treta yuga over here kali yuga over here we don't even know if you are an ascending kali yuga or a descending kali yuga at this point we don't even know that we don't even know what yuga we are currently in so it all depends on what is your definition of year it all depends on how you choose to interpret some of these things so let's 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 leave it off the table at this point as things that are not known it's not as if everything in indian context has been understood there are a lot of things that are still waiting to be deciphered by good scholars and understood this is one of those things that should be in the basket of i don't understand this too well so i can't talk about this too well so thank you very much it's been a wonderful